This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Text I would like us to think about for a few moments tonight is Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. Hear the word of God. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You are familiar with products in the grocery store, perhaps, or advertisements that you see all over the place that might have emblazoned across the packaging or across the advertisement, new and improved. Now, if you're like me, and you have my condolences if you are, if you're like me, you begin to wonder what was wrong with the old product. What are they hiding? What did it do to you before they came along and improved it? And as I was thinking about that expression, I discovered that there are, in fact, others like me, uh, namely uh, this evening, my daughter Rebecca, just uh, an hour or two ago as we were eating, I mentioned uh, new and improved. Uh, and she said, you know, I've been thinking about that, and I have a problem with that, because if something's new, it means it hasn't existed before, and if something's improved, it means it has existed before. How can it be both? So we decided that was a newly found oxymoron and delighted in the fact. New and improved. Well, we know what that means. Usually it means there was nothing actually wrong with the previous product, and although new and improved is inherently contradictory, uh, if it is new, how can it be improved? Uh, we know what that means. You know, it means they've, they've come up with something better. It happens to software all the time. It happens to products as they find some better way to make it. Not that anything was necessarily wrong with what went before, but what we have now is better. Well, the book of Hebrews is the new and improved label on the new covenant in Christ. The recipients of the letter to the Hebrews, what we gather from the letter, were Jewish Christians who were suffering for their faith. And because of that suffering, they were tempted to look back at their Jewish ways, inherited from their fathers and grandfathers and and great-grandmothers and great-grandfathers and great-grandmothers and on and on and on into the past, and tempted to think, well, maybe we should go back to that. Perhaps because they looked at it fondly, perhaps because of the heat of the persecution and the desire, understandable desire to get away from that, maybe we should go back to what we had before 
when life seemed easier and uh, the ways of our ancestors. And the writer to the Hebrews is writing to say no, that in fact they must not do that, that what they have now is far better. It is, in fact, new, although with continuity with the old, and it is improved over what they had in the old. When I was uh, much, much younger, in the early 70s, we were on a vacation in Florida, and we went to Orlando and visited the Walt Disney World Preview Center. I can remember looking at the big posters and the pictures and everything that was to come, and it was exciting. And I, I, I was heartbroken that we had to walk away because it wasn't there yet. It was under construction. It hadn't opened yet. But I've been to Walt Disney World, as many of you have, uh, have as well, uh, a number of times. And I have to tell you, I never sat around thinking, boy, I wish I could visit that preview center again. Well, that's what the writer to the Hebrews is saying. He's saying, you, you have the real thing. What came before was merely preparation. It was merely a foreshadowing. It was merely a foretaste of the reality that you have in Christ. And the argument uh, runs throughout the whole book. But we want to look at just one verse tonight, and certainly with reference to its context. Uh, thinking here on Monday, Thursday, here in um, the eve of Good Friday, here in the shadow of the cross, about the sacrifice of Christ that put the new covenant into effect. After all, in the Lord's Supper, Jesus said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And so what I want us to do is to think about that sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, his giving himself for us that puts the whole new covenant into effect, that makes it what it is. First of all, I want you to think about three things. First of all, the value of that sacrifice that we think about tonight. We see this in verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The value of the sacrifice is seen in a couple of expressions here. First of all, the cost of it, the blood of Christ. Now, that verse actually contrasts, that those words contrast with a phrase back in verse 12. Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves. And then again in verse 13, the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer. What is all that about? Well, it's pointing, of course, to the Old Testament sacrifices, a system given by God himself, a system that was good, a system that was right, uh, there seems to be specific reference in verse 13 when he refers to goats and bulls, the ashes of a heifer, uh, with the goats and the bulls to be referring to Leviticus, Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, that annual uh, occurrence in the life of Israel when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. Well, a bull was slain for the sins of the priests, sins of the people. The blood was sprinkled. Uh, and there were two goats involved. The goat, one of the goats was slain, and its blood sprinkled on the, the Ark of the Covenant, sprinkled on the altar. But there was another goat, the so-called scapegoat, that uh, hands were placed upon it, and symbolically the sins of the people placed on the scapegoat, 
And the scapegoat was led away outside the people, out into the wilderness, signifying in the death of the goat both atonement for sin, satisfaction of divine justice against sin, but also the removal of sin. As that goat wandered away, was led out of the camp, out into the wilderness, uh, a graphic illustration of the people's sins going away with it. And yet, as the scriptures tell us in verse 22, uh, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And it is true, uh, as verse 4 says in the next chapter, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In reference to the ashes of the heifer uh, from the book of Numbers, with the red heifer that was, that was slain and its carcass burned and the ashes were kept, and apparently used along with water to signify cleansing for people who come in contact with a dead body. Uh, he points out that those things, blood of goats, blood of bulls, ashes of a heifer, sanctified for the purification of the flesh. In other words, they did perform a cleansing in an outward sense, in a ceremonial sense, in a ritualistic sense. Symbolically, but the blood of bulls and goats can't atone for a human being. They just can't do it. They can serve a ceremonial and symbolic function, but they can't actually atone for our sins. And so here, the contrast is not the blood of animals, but the blood of Christ, the Son of God. Blood of incalculable value. Sinless blood, human blood, divine blood that was shed on the cross. That's part of the value of it, but part of the value also comes in in that he was perfect. Notice again in verse 14, offered himself without blemish to God. The animals of the Old Testament sacrifices had to be as perfect, as flawless an animal as could be found. As I've often said, someone couldn't take you know, the one that was born three-legged and had poor health and say, well, this was not long for this world anyway, we'll offer that one to God. But how, many do, how, many, how often do we tend to offer it to God, the leftovers ourselves? But they had to take the best. They had to take the most perfect, most flawless animal to use for sacrifices because that animal had to be as close to perfect as it could be. Now we come to the Lamb of God in the New Covenant, the Lord Jesus. And he is here without blemish, which is why he had to be sinless. The 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 as close to perfection as possible in those Old Testament sacrificial animals were pointing toward that sinless, perfect obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, if he'd sinned, he'd be fit only to die for his own sins, wouldn't he? And yet, having no sin of his own, death having no claim upon him whatsoever, he was qualified then to stand in our place. Do you see the immense value of the sacrifice that the Father offered up and that Christ offered up Himself by the Holy Spirit when He offered Himself up. The sinless, divine blood of the Son of God. Someone without spot, without blemish. 
Well, that's one thing that this verse points out to us about this sacrifice of Christ that we think about and meditate on this evening is the sheer value of it, far surpassing any any animal in the Old Testament. But the second thing that we need to think about here is the effect of that sacrifice. What did the sacrifice accomplish? Notice what verse 14 says. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works? That's an interesting way to put it. Purifies our conscience. Because we tend to think about Jesus cleansing the soul, purifying the person. And of course, that's true. But let's think back again to that old covenant situation. A person has sinned. They've done something they know is wrong, and they're guilty. They feel guilty. They feel remorse. Their conscience troubles them. And they go to the priest, and they offer a sacrifice, and that animal dies, and they recognize. That's what I deserve. That should be me. And the animal dies. The priest pronounces his blessing, and they go away. Well, they're ceremonially cleansed, and yet they lie awake at night and their conscience is still bothering. It just doesn't quite feel complete. But the Lord Jesus Christ, when he dies, he doesn't just symbolically restore us to a ceremonial cleanness. He actually atones for our sin. He actually removes our guilt because he's taken it upon himself as a fellow human being, one of us. Yet fully God, capable in suffering hell there on the cross in three hours. And when he died on the cross, our sins were not just symbolically, but truly, absolutely, completely, eternally, Paid for A real atonement, not merely a symbolic atonement. A genuine satisfaction of divine justice, not merely a symbolic illustration of divine justice. But that's not what the writer to the Hebrews is talking about. It's based on that. But notice he didn't say he purifies our souls, although Christ does that. He says that in other places, as plenty of other places in Scripture do. He says he purifies our conscience. Because it's one thing to be guilty. It's another thing to have guilt feelings. Some people who are truly guilty don't feel any guilt. Think of a serial murderer who seems to express no remorse for what he's done. Or you think of someone who who hasn't done anything, and yet they feel guilty. Two are two different things. Now, very often, especially if you have a sensitive conscience, if you have done something wrong, you will feel guilty. You will be troubled. You will hurt. You'll ache. Your conscience will burn on the inside. But you see what the writer of the Hebrews is telling us here is that because of Jesus' death, our consciences can be at peace. I had an interesting thought. I don't even know where I heard this. Maybe it was radio, preacher on the radio. Talking about uh, Paul, 
Saul of Tarsus, you know, hater, persecutor of Christians, has become a Christian, he's the apostle, pointed out that Paul no doubt ran into people whose family members, Christians, fellow Christians now, whose family members he may have had some part in their death. How does he live with himself? Well, his conscience is clear. One thing was before Christ. Not that he didn't sin after he became a Christian, he did. But Christ had paid for those sins. And he was all the more amazed at the gospel calling him to Christ as well as and then appointing him to be a preacher of that very gospel he once hated and, and persecuted. But that's what the writer to Hebrews is speaking of here, to purify not just our souls, not that so that we, yes, thank God, are objectively pardoned and cleansed before a holy God, but that when our memories of sins arise and accuse, when Satan himself comes before you and accuses you and throws sin in your face, you remember that Christ has died. You remember that the, the wrath of God has been poured out. He doesn't remember that sin against you anymore. It's been paid for. It's been dealt with. And preaching the gospel to your own heart, to your own conscience, your conscience is still because it has been purified by nothing less than the costly, perfect blood of Christ. You see, the effect of the gospel is not just to make us pure before God, it does that, and we need that. We have to have that. Just feeling better about ourselves will not suffice. But it does help us to realize that because God has forgiven us, we can forgive ourselves. Our conscience can be at rest. Christ purifies our consciences from those dead works, those works that produce death that we did before. Have you experienced that cleansing? Do you know what I'm talking about here? Have you ever had your conscience burn over something you've done? Trouble you, wake you up in the middle of the night? Jump on you when you're not even thinking about it and you think, oh yeah, I did that. What is the answer to that? Well, the answer is the gospel. Christ has died. Yes, I did that. But Christ died in my place for that. And the Father has forgiven me. And I am pure in His sight. In Christ. The value of it, the effect of it. And the last thing he mentions here is just the purpose of it. Too often, the gospel is presented merely to escape hell. In other words, the gospel is often presented in a way to remove the negative. Because I've believed in Christ, I will not suffer in eternity in hell. And that's true, and certainly we're happy about that, we're glad for that. But the gospel, even more than the negative, is something positive. It's to restore our relationship with the Father. And all too often you see people who claim to be Christians and somehow think that they're free from hell and yet have no interest in God. Notice what, how the verse closes. That Jesus purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We are spared the effects of our sin. But the reason Christ died is not merely to purify our conscience, but that we might serve God. And the two go together. It's very hard to serve God with your whole being when you feel extremely guilty and think somehow God is displeased with you. Isn't it? It's hard to be motivated when you feel guilty. Hard to be excited about serving Christ when you feel like he doesn't like you. 
or he's angry with you, or you're angry with yourself, or you're disappointed with yourself. That's why Paul says, I make every effort to keep my conscience clear before God, first of all, and man. There's nothing quite like the joy of a clear conscience. No sin offers pleasure equal to the joy of a clear conscience. Guilt hinders our serving God, but forgiveness motivates our serving God to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Show me a Christian who is on fire for the Lord, who is excited about serving God, who is excited about following Christ, and I will show you a Christian who knows the joy of sin forgiven. Like Jesus says, she loves much because she has been forgiven much. We love God. We love Christ. We're excited about serving God. We want to serve God. We want to live for God. When the reality of the fullness of The greatness of our forgiveness hits home. Which takes a couple of things. One, recognizing the magnitude of our sin and our guilt, but also recognizing the magnitude of the offering that was made at Calvary on Good Friday for all who will believe in Jesus. And so as we think about these things tonight, we recognize in their case that the blood of bulls and goats, the ashes of a heifer, While they might cleanse ceremonially, outwardly, they can't cleanse inwardly, and they can't fully give that peace of conscience that only the Lamb of God can give. You think, well, you know, I haven't been offering any sacrifices or counting on those things, but look at it this way. How many times have you tried to deal with a clean conscience, just by, or, or a guilty conscience, rather, by just doing better? By just trying harder? By just telling yourself you won't do that again, or you will do this, or you'll start doing this? Self-improvement is not the gospel. The gospel changes us. The gospel makes us want to live in a new and improved way. But that's not where you start. You go to the cross. You, You survey the wondrous cross where Christ died, suffering there for your sins. And let the greatness of God's grace stir you with the full purification of your conscience that Jesus provides there. And then you start to serve, and then you start to change. But don't offer to to the Lord the sacrifices of self-improvement. That's goats and bulls. It may change you a little bit on the outside, but it won't change you on the inside. The gospel changes you from the inside out. You know, Isaac Watts' hymn, we're not going to sing it tonight, we have sung it before, uh, it captures this verse perfectly in this passage in Hebrews. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly Lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. Are you trusting in Christ tonight, this eve of Good Friday? Are you resting in Him? Has He purified your conscience of those dead works? Well, then remember, anytime you're tempted to go back, anytime you feel a pang of conscience over those past forgiven sins, think of these three words from Hebrews 9:14: How much more? How much more?
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words. Thank you for the truth that they convey. Lord, how much more Christ cleanses than those old sacrifices you gave, yes, but as a sign, as a pointer to a greater reality. Lord, how much more Christ cleanses us and purifies our conscience and all our efforts to reform and improve and do better and promises we make to you and ourselves. How much more does the blood of Christ purify our consciences, Lord, that we might serve you. And Lord, I pray for myself, pray for this church, Lord, that as we realize and enjoy more and more the joy of sins forgiven, that we would serve you delightfully, fully, gladly. We would serve you well because our Savior has made us clean. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.